0: And now, O oh Lord, as we come to Your Word, Lord, we ask as beggars, as hungry beggars, that You would feed us. Feed us with Your Word. Nourish our souls, O oh Lord. We pray that You would use Your Word to accomplish Your purposes. And we know, we know that Your Word says that it never returns void. So we pray, O oh Lord, that You would give us ears to hear that You would give us eyes to see, that the Holy Spirit would be giving us illumination of the text that we study today, in order that we may rightly understand it and rightly apply it to our lives, in order that we may rightly see our need for Christ in light of the passage that we come to today. Lord, we remember that Your Word is inerrant that it is infallible, that it is inspired, and that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And oh Lord, that is our desire. That You would use Your Word to train us for works of righteousness in order that Christ would be glorified in our lives. We also pray for our children who are hearing this today. We pray that Your Gospel would save them. We pray, oh Lord, that You would give our parents wisdom in terms of discipleship with our children and we pray that in your time lord that they would be added to the number of the saints by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone use this time O lord use your word in this time to glorify christ and to strengthen your people for the glory of christ In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bible with you, please turn to Psalm 38. The first Sunday of every month, Uh, we study the Psalms. And you might be wondering now, wait a minute. uh, You did Psalm 36 last month. Where's Psalm 37? Uh, Good question. It was a year ago. Uh, That's a Psalm that deals with. Um, when it appears that wicked men are prevailing. And so it seemed very timely to study that right around election time last year. So we studied that a year ago. If you need to go back, it's obviously on our website. Uh, You can find it there. But today we're going to be looking at Psalm 38, which is uh, yet another very, very helpful psalm. Uh, Cathartic. um, Therapeutic. Whatever you want to call it. It's very, uh, these Psalms have been amazing to study. And this one deals specifically with affliction and suffering and repentance. Uh, Those are are the themes that get fleshed out in this psalm. It's probably safe to say, I, I say probably, it's probably safe to say that the vast majority of sickness and suffering that you endure as a Christian has absolutely nothing to do with your sin. And I think that when most people hear that or consider that, they're probably more shocked by the implication that any suffering or sickness uh, can be related to sin uh, than they are by the idea that most sickness and suffering isn't directly related to sin in our lives. Uh, if there 's any book in the Bible that conclusively demonstrates that uh, suffering and sickness aren 't necessarily related to uh, to sin, it would be the Book of Job. Of course, if you know the Book of Job, Job was a righteous man. Uh, he suffered greatly, however, as a testimony to the fact that a person can Love and worship God rightly and serve God rightly for who He is rather than for what He gives us. That was Satan's challenge before God. So we understand that most sin and suffering isn't related to, or uh, most sickness and suffering isn't related to sin, but sometimes it is. Sometimes sickness and suffering are the direct result of of sin in a person's life. In Second Chronicles uh, chapter 26, King Uzziah, uh, who became king of Judah at the young age of 16, he's an example of somebody who uh, suffered, who, who became sick uh, and suffered as a result of sin in his life. Although he said earlier in chapter 26 to have been uh, a man who did right in the eyes of the Lord, particularly in his youth, when he grew old, and as he grew stronger, uh, he became very prideful. And so then we're told in chapter 26, verse 16, he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, if you know how the, uh, how the temple worked, uh, you might realize that that's not how The altar of incense was supposed to work. Uh, It wasn't just open to the public for anyone to come in and offer any kind of incense that they wanted. It was only open to the sons of Aaron, uh, the priests of the temple. And so upon hearing of what King Uzziah has done, 80 priests come together and they confront King Uzziah in his sin. They warn him. They say, get out of the sanctuary for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. Which of course is the greatest threat that anybody could possibly be faced with. And so this should have humbled King Uzziah. Faced with a threat like that, it should humble a person. But instead, King Uzziah became enraged that these 80 priests would come and threaten him. And in his anger, uh, God caused leprosy to come upon him and break out on his forehead. And so we read in chapter 26 verse 21, King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the lord so why did he have this illness because of his sin because of his sin and so we need to understand that while most the vast majority of sickness and suffering is probably unrelated to personal sin there are times when it is related In the psalm that we come to today, Psalm 38, we'll see that David at some point in his life suffered some type of affliction, some type of illness as a result, as a direct result of a specific sin that he committed. And this led David to write Psalm 38. Psalm 38 is what we would call a a psalm of lament. Uh, Psalm, some would refer to psalms like this one as psalms of sorrow or repentance. Uh, one of the reasons people love the psalms so much though is because the psalms uh, capture every human emotion on the spectrum. The whole spectrum of human emotions is contained somewhere in the psalms. There are psalms of joyful thanksgiving. There are psalms in which the author is, is angry. Uh, there are psalms in which the author is afraid. And then there are psalms like this one in which the author is filled with lament or sorrow. There are psalms for every season and every emotion in life that we feel. And psalms of lament are a particular blessing to God's people for two reasons. Number one, because the Christian life isn't easy. We all have times uh, of lament we all have times of sorrow that we go through at some point in life, and secondly, Psalms of lament instruct us in how we should be in times of lament. They model for us what it means, what it, what it looks like to turn to God in the midst of our suffering. The Apostle Peter implored The first century church, which was being persecuted fiercely, he wrote to them saying, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This is a time when they were being persecuted. He didn't say, rise up, this is your time to fight. He said, humble yourselves and cast all your anxieties on God. Why? Because He cares for you. Psalms of Lament teach us how to do this that Peter wrote, and how to do this in a biblical, God-honoring manner. This is what David does in this psalm. He casts his fears, his anxieties on God. He humbles himself under the mighty hand of God, begging for mercy from God, fully aware that he's only deserving of God's holy and righteous wrath, as a result of his sin. Now you might be wondering, what was his sin? Are we going to find out what his sin is? The answer is no. We aren't. We're not going to find out what it was. We have no idea what it was. We we aren't told. Uh, And perhaps the reason for that is that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what his sin was. The important thing for us to note is only that his suffering is a result of some sin that he was guilty of, and he knew it and he knew it. So the point of this psalm is this. The point of this psalm is that in times of sickness and suffering, in times of anguish and affliction, we must humble ourselves, examine ourselves, confess our sin, and turn to the Lord for mercy and grace. So the structure of this psalm, before we get started... The structure is very interesting. Charles Spurgeon uh, broke it down into seven sections which alternate uh, back and forth between David praying and then David taking a, a glance at the world or, or describing his, uh, his afflictions, his condition. Uh, and that strikes me as probably the simplest and best way to see this psalm because it helps us to see the progression that David makes every time he prays To God. It shows us the growing sense of peace that he will experience as he casts his cares, casts his anxieties on the Lord. So the psalm begins with a prayer, and David begins describing his anguish in verses 1 to 4. Uh, Let's look at Psalm 38, verses 1 to 4, where it says A psalm of David for a memorial. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath and chasten me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. Now if you remember back to Psalm 6, which was, Almost three years ago, uh, we've been going through the Psalms for about three years, but back in Psalm 6, which was another psalm of lament, uh, you might see that the beginning of this psalm is almost entirely identical to the beginning of that psalm. Psalm 6 begins, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Very similar to what he says here in verse 1. They are virtually identical in English translations, but there are only some very minor differences in the Hebrew. But David knew that his suffering was a consequence for sin, of some sin that he had committed, whatever that sin may have been. He says in verse 3, there is no health in my bones because of my sin. Many Christians when they're suffering, will wonder if God is angry at them. As they try to understand why they are suffering, why they are enduring some type of illness or some type of affliction, they'll wonder if if He's unleashing, condemning wrath on them. David is pleading with God not to do that. David is pleading with God to withhold His anger, to withhold His wrath. And that's a normal and natural thing to do, and I don't think there's anything wrong at all with praying this way. But notice what David doesn't say as he prays to the Lord in verse 1. He doesn't say, don't rebuke me. Nor does he say, don't chasten me. Rather, what David is praying is that God won't do these things out of his anger or his wrath. Maybe the severity of David's affliction caused him to wonder if that's what God was doing. But notice something else that David doesn't say here. He doesn't say that he doesn't deserve this affliction. He's not daring to accuse God of being unjust by either causing or allowing David to suffer this affliction. That's a really important thing to see because to accuse God of injustice is to assault God's character. It's to defame Him. It's to slander Him. It is actually the opposite of being humble before the Lord. You can't be humble before the Lord and yet accusing God of injustice. No, being humble would have us understand that God is never unjust. Even if we are suffering, God is never unjust. So David is humble before the Lord. He acknowledges that he is 100% utterly helpless and that he knows perfectly well that his affliction is a consequence of his sin. He confesses that his sin became greater than he probably initially thought it would. He says, my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. If only he had had that perspective before he sinned. But sin is so deceptive in that way. It's always bigger. It's always heavier than we think it's going to be. One of the worst feelings that I have personally ever experienced uh, came as a young man in my 20s who used to do a lot of weightlifting, uh, especially after work as a way of burning off steam during the years when I worked in the Uh, the casinos of Las Vegas. But one night, I do remember I was bench pressing, and suddenly, uh, I just had no strength. It it just like vanished. I I had no strength to lift the weights off of my chest. And so they came crashing down on my chest. And I have no idea. As As I was thinking about this and trying to remember, how did I get out of that situation? I don't remember how I got out of that situation. All that stuck with my memory is the feeling of being trapped underneath those weights. And that is the most helpless feeling I think I've ever felt. But that night those weights weighed too much for me for whatever reason. And David is saying the same thing about his sin. He's trapped underneath it and it's crushing him. He may have initially thought that he could handle it. And if that's indeed the case, well, he now realizes how wrong he was. But the lesson for me that night was always have a spotter Always have somebody with you who's strong enough to lift the weights off of you uh, when my strength fails. But this is also a picture of what sin did to David and will do to all of us as well. And who can lift it from us but God alone? And so David does the right thing. He calls out to God. God's the only one that can lift it. He calls out to God. What he needed to do was what he did back in chapter 6, in Psalm 6, verse 2. He prayed this. He said, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Now some scholars actually believe that Psalm 6 was written immediately after Psalm 38. And if that's the case, uh, David clearly came around and realized uh, the remedy for his affliction. But David knows that he deserves God's anger. He deserves God's wrath. He has sinned. But back in Psalm 6, he asks God for grace, for mercy instead. And this is the humble way, this is the right way, the biblical way, to approach God in the midst of sickness, suffering, affliction, anguish, whatever. We are never justified in accusing God of injustice. We don't want to do that. We never want to think that we're in a position to accuse God or to make demands of God. We're never in a position to do that. And so all we can do is what David did in Psalm 6. Plead with God for mercy. Knowing this that nobody who has ever truly repented and come to God begging for mercy, begging for grace, has walked away destitute and empty-handed. God has more mercy than we have sin. He has more grace than we have iniquity. And He loves to forgive more than we love to sin. He's generous with His mercy He's generous with the riches of His mercy. If it's mercy that David desires, he has found a mine filled with treasure beyond worth. And so will we when we go to the Lord in our suffering. David continues describing the anguish that he's experiencing. Look at verses 5-8 to with me. He says, "My My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long, for my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. So David is, is clearly in a, in a state of anguish here, in a state of affliction, it's, but it's mental. It's mental. It's mental, it's physical, it's spiritual, it's consuming every aspect of his being. Mentally, he's afraid. Physically, he's helpless. But, but note the repetition that we see here on the cause of his suffering. In verse 3, we saw that he said, there is no health in my bones because of my sin. But look what he says now in verse 5. He says, my wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I hope you see the fact that there is a parallel there. That sin and folly are interchangeable in that sense. They run parallel to each other. We're supposed to see that that indicates that sin is folly. It's foolishness. That all sin is foolishness for a number of reasons. Now sometimes our sin is has real physical consequences. And every single one of us already knows this. Uh, Fornication, for example, can result in the transmission of a disease, right? We know these things. Uh, You know, bearing false witness against a friend can result in the loss of a friend. Uh, It can can fracture a relationship. We understand that sometimes sin does have real physical consequences. Consequences. We understand that it's not necessarily unusual for sin to result in some type of physical, maybe even mental, anguish. The physical and natural consequences are one reason that sin is folly, that it's foolishness. But this pales in comparison to the primary reason that all sin is foolishness, and that's because sin offends God. And sin has real spiritual consequences in our lives. It can result in the loss of having a sense of assurance of salvation. It can result in shame. It can harden the heart toward God. Even in saints, even in God's people, even in somebody who's legitimately saved, yes, their heart can be hardened toward God as well. It can grieve the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, which is why Paul warns us against doing that. And these are all consequences that should cause legitimate Christians to feel spiritual anguish. Why should we sin against God when God has never been anything except good and gracious toward us? Has He ever done wrong to us? Well, then how dare we do something wrong toward Him? And sometimes when we suffer, but not always, sometimes we can discern the fact that our affliction, that our suffering, is somehow related to God disciplining us for our sin. Not all suffering is related directly to a specific sin in our lives, but sometimes it is. How do we know the difference? How do we know if it's related to sin or if it's not? And the answer is, I don't know. All I know is that God has His ways and He has ways of making things known to us. Just as He did to David here. We don't know how David knew that his anguish was a result of his sin, but God had made it very clear to him. He knew, and I have to believe, that God will in some way make it clear to you too if that's what He's doing. Was God going to do the very thing that David feared. What what did David fear? David feared that God was going to chastise him and discipline him out of wrath, out of anger. Was God rebuking David in this way though? Was Was He rebuking David out of wrath or chastening him as a result of His holy burning anger? And the answer is no. No, He wasn't. God will never ever act in an unloving manner toward His people. That doesn't mean He won't discipline them. He will. Uh, We're told specifically in Hebrews chapter 12 that He will discipline every son whom He receives. He will discipline them. He will rebuke them. He will chasten them. But He does these things from a position of love rather than wrath rather than malice. If you have believed on Christ Jesus, you never have to worry about God ever pouring out His wrath on you. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But at the same time, you must know that the Lord does discipline those whom He loves as a good father disciplines His children because He loves them. Hebrews 12.7 says, God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But know this, that when you suffer, that when you are experiencing anguish, whatever you may be suffering and whatever the cause may be, God will not be disciplining you out of His wrath, and He will not forsake you. Whatever your affliction might be, God is ready to forgive. God is ready to forgive. God has ordained everything. Everything that comes to pass, God has either caused it or allowed it. He has ordained it, including afflictions. And if you don't believe that God ordains afflictions, you don't believe that He is sovereign. You have a, a, a God, a lesser God of your own imagination. If God is sovereign, and if God will never condemn you because you are in Christ, then whatever affliction you may suffer, whether it's mental, physical, spiritual, a combination of all of the above, it's only entirely for your benefit. God has given the nod of approval to every affliction that we face, but He uses them only for His glory and for the good of His people. So what if God's purpose in either causing or allowing you to suffer is that He would be glorified in your suffering? This was the case of a man who was born blind in John chapter 9, isn't it? the disciples start to immediately try to connect the dots. They're trying to draw a line between some specific sin and His suffering, His condition. They assume that the affliction that He is facing, His blindness, is punitive in nature. That God is punishing Him for something that either He did or His parents did. They ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or His parents, that He would be born blind? In their minds... Those are the only two options. Somebody sinned. That's why this guy is suffering. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, it's neither. It's neither. He says, it was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And that was also the case with Job, wasn't it? And the fact that he endured his affliction so patiently, all the while never losing his faith in God, is exactly why Job is one example of somebody who suffered well and endured in their affliction. And it applies just as much to times of happiness and prosperity as it does to times of anguish and affliction that we are to Glorify God in all that we do. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Whether you're eating, whether you're drinking, whether you're prospering, whether you're laying in bed dying. This is why we don't believe in euthanasia. We don't support euthanasia. Because we believe that suffering is actually a stage for God to be glorified on. And that He ordains all suffering that we endure, and he gives us the strength to endure our suffering. That's exactly what David is modeling for us here in Psalm 38. He's not faulting God. He's not accusing God. He's not cursing God. That's what Job's wife told him to do, right? Just curse God and die. Just get this over with. No, he's not doing any of these things. He's not growing hard-hearted or calloused toward God. Now, David is earnestly seeking God, and in doing so, he's being just completely honest, completely transparent about what he's done and what he's now experiencing as a result of whatever it was he did. He's turning to God, and he's doing what Peter instructs, casting his anxieties, casting his cares upon God, knowing that God cares for him. I noted at the beginning, uh, as we were getting started, I noted that we would see a progression in David's sense of peace every time he turns to the Lord in prayer. And that is exactly what we see with the next petition that David brings before the Lord in verse 9, where he reminds himself of one of the most important things that we can know as God's children. And that is that whatever concerns we bring to the Lord, he's already aware of it. He, he already knows what our condition is. He knows our situation better than we do. He knows what we're feeling. He knows what we're thinking more clearly than we do. Because his thinking isn't convoluted by emotions and selfishness and things like that. So look at me at what David prays in verse 9. He says, Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. Just a short prayer. Just a short, one-sentence prayer. But like David, friends, whatever your desires and longings are, whatever your suffering or affliction may be, God is keenly aware of it all. It's not like anything that we have or anything that we think or anything that we feel is hidden from God. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from Him. If something could be hidden from Him, then God has the ability to learn something. And if God has the ability to learn something, is He really God? Nope. He's not. So nothing in all of creation is hidden from God. If we did an inventory of what we've seen that David says he knows in this psalm, there are only two things. We see that David knew that his affliction was a result of his sin, and he knew that God was aware of his anguish. This is one of those things I don't think I can possibly say enough. I don't know if I could do justice to it if I preached it in every single sermon for the rest of my life. But being a Christian does not mean that you won't suffer. It means that you'll never suffer in vain. That you'll never suffer without purpose. And being a Christian means that when you do suffer, God will still be with you, and God will still be for you, even when you find yourself drowning in the depths of despair. This is true of affliction that has nothing to do with any particular sin, and it's even true of suffering that we endure that does have a connection to some specific particular sin. But is His promise that He would never leave us or forsake us, is that not a great source of comfort and assurance in the midst of suffering? Yeah, it is. Think about all the people in the world who who don't know you, and who will never know you or know how you have suffered. They're they're complete strangers to you. They, They don't care about you. But God is no stranger to you. God is no stranger to any of His children. He watches over His children constantly. And not because he's just, like the police, he's just like waiting to bust them the next time they sin. No, he watches over us constantly because he loves us and because he cares for his children. And is that not exactly the very reason that Peter urges us to cast our anxieties, to cast our concerns, to cast our cares upon God? Yeah, that's why Peter tells us to go to God with our cares. Because he cares for us. When you start to wrap your mind around this and I'm not sure that it's really possible to do so when you start to wrap your mind around the fact that God cares about you and that he's aware of what you're going through in the midst of any affliction and not that he not only that he's aware but that he cares about you about how you're thinking about how you're feeling in the midst of your afflictions our fears begin to subside when we consider that, when we even tr- start to wrap our minds around that fact. Our fears begin to lessen and our sense of peace begins to grow this is one of the most practical reasons I can think of to have a very high view of God yes first and foremost you want to have a very high view of God because that's the correct view that is the biblical view but also because if you have the proper view of God if you have a high view of God and a low view of yourself you have an awareness of his presence uh, as a comfort to you. The the person who's proud, they think, well, of, of course God cares about how I feel. Of course God cares about how I think. But if you see God for who He is and consider that He cares for you, it has a way of transcending all of our problems to consider He's still with me. He's still for me. He still loves me. That doesn't mean that the problems are just going to go away necessarily, but having a sense of God's presence and being reminded of His care for us has a way of making our problems seem so much smaller. Because we remember how big God is, He's always bigger than our problems. And this is what David is experiencing in his anguish. And I hope that you can see and apply this principle to your life in times when you too are in some form of anguish, whether it's, again, mental, uh, physical, or spiritual, or a combination of the above. But to whom can David turn? Only to God. Nobody else is going to help him. Nobody else can help him. Nobody cares about him as much as God does. David has no strength in himself, and even his friends have abandoned him, have failed him, as we'll see as we continue. Let's look at verses 10-14. to He says, My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, even that has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague. And my kinsmen stand far off. Those who seek my life lay snares for me. And those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction. And they devise treachery all day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. And I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Yes, I am like a man who does not hear. And in whose mouth are no arguments. David has no strength. No physical strength. Even the, the light of his eyes, he says, is fading him. I'm sure that David was feeling some, uh, some degree of physical weakness here, but I don't believe that that's exactly what he's describing here. I think he's experiencing what we might refer to as what they call spiritual depression. Uh, he feels far away from God, but he realizes that God is his only hope he realizes that his sin is folly because it offends God, yes, but also sin is folly because of the effect that it can have on us, because of the effects that it's had on David himself as he, uh, as he endures it, as he, as he writes this. It causes us to feel helpless against it when we feel like God is far away. It causes us to feel powerless. It darkens our outlook on things, which is why it's called spiritual depression. David wants this affliction to end. Of, of course he does. I mean, who wouldn't want an affliction to end? What, who wouldn't want uh, their suffering to end, their discomfort to end? But the kind of affliction that David is experiencing was an affliction that he was powerless to overcome on his own. He couldn't rely on his own strength according to what he says here in verse 10. His strength is, is worthless when it comes to overcoming his condition. His condition. So, what about his friends? Maybe they could help him. No, his strength has failed him, and so have his friends and loved ones. Even his loved ones, even his trusted companions, are steering clear from him in the midst of his sickness. Instead, he finds himself surrounded by enemies. His loved ones have left a vacuum that's been filled by people who hate him. French philosopher david uh, or Blaise Pascal once noted that human beings are the glory and scum of the universe. People love, but people also loathe. People help, but people also hurt and Psychologists tell us that one of the main reasons that people can do such incredible harm, especially towards somebody who is in the midst of an affliction, in the midst of suffering, is because when they are in the presence of somebody who is suffering, it forces them to consider their own mortality. What they start to do is they start imagining themselves in that condition. And they don't like it, so they stay away. They begin to imagine what it would be like to be in that person's shoes. And, well, we don't like to think about ourselves suffering and being afflicted and so one of the most harmful things that people will do towards someone who's suffering is just keep their distance from them it sounds like that's exactly what david was experiencing because his loved ones are keeping their distance from him david's enemies are able to get close to him in this moment in which he is extremely vulnerable i mean what's david going to do David can't defend himself. He doesn't have the strength. He can't vindicate himself. He's guilty. So what can, what can David do? Who can vindicate David? Who can help David? God can. And all David could do was entrust himself into the hands of God. God. And so He ignores the words of His enemies. He doesn't contend with them. He doesn't argue with them. He says He's like a mute man toward them. He doesn't engage with them. He just essentially acts like they aren't there. He ignores them. By the way, I think it's worth noting that Jesus experienced the same thing. On the night of His betrayal, all of the disciples left His side. All the disciples abandoned Him. And He was surrounded only by His enemies. I also think it's worth noting that in the parable of the sheep and goats, one of the things that distinguishes sheep and goats, true believers from false believers, is the fact that those who have truly believed don't leave the afflicted to suffer alone. Jesus says to the sheep, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. That's what we read in Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 and 36. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, His people, the sheep, don't leave somebody to suffer alone. They go to them. Now, There are probably an infinite number of reasons that people tend not to uh, go to somebody who's suffering, tend not to reach out to somebody who's in an affliction. Maybe it forces them to consider their own mortality. Uh, More likely, I think, they probably just aren't sure what to do or what to say, which makes them feel awkward or makes them feel uncomfortable. But I would encourage us to just consider our attitude toward those who are suffering and how the parable of the sheep and goats speaks to us about what our response should be, what our attitude should be towards somebody who is suffering. So confronted with his own inability to do anything about his situation, to bring relief to his condition, and confronted with isolation and rejection from his loved ones, David is actually in a wonderful place because the only hands he can entrust himself into now are the hands of God. With God as his only source of hope and strength, David resolves to wait patiently on the Lord in his third petition that we see here in verse 15. Let's look at verse 15 together. David says, "'For I hope in You, O Lord.'" You will answer, O Lord my God. Now he's got confidence. Do you see the difference between this prayer and the prayer he had back in verse 1? He's changed completely. He's done a 180 at this point. He's not feeling like God is scorning him. He's not feeling like God is pouring out his wrath on him, uh, rebuking him as a result of his anger or his wrath. No, no. He's on a 180. He's trusting completely in God to help him in his situation. Now in Psalm 37, which again we covered uh, in two lessons last year around election time, the primary theme of that psalm was trusting and waiting on God for His deliverance when it looks like evil men and wicked people are prevailing. Uh, here in Psalm 38, uh, maybe the reason it's placed after Psalm 37 is because... Here we're talking about waiting on the Lord too. In Psalm 38, the Hebrew word that gets translated hope here in verse 15 is defined as to wait, hope, or expect. That's what David's doing. So the advice that was given in Psalm 37, the theme of Psalm 37 is applied, is put into practice here in Psalm 38. But to wait on the Lord, we must see then, is to hope in the Lord. It's to understand that God does things in His own perfect timing. But trusting that at some point, He will act. He will do what is right. And let's be honest, that can sort of drive us crazy. We're very time-oriented people. We're a very time-oriented culture. If, if you've never been to a culture that isn't as time-oriented as we are, it will freak you out uh, that they are 20 minutes late to start a worship service, that maybe they're two hours late to start a worship service, that if somebody doesn't show up for worship, they wait They wait until their uncle or their father or their friend gets there to start the service. Uh, They they say, we're going to start at 10, and by 1 o'clock, they're like, maybe somebody should go get him. We tend to be so impatient, it makes it very difficult to wait on the Lord. James Boyce notes this. He says, quote, 100 years ago, if someone was taking a trip and missed the stagecoach, well, that was all right, they could get it next month. Today we get impatient if we miss one turn of the revolving door. End quote. Waiting on God might not be easy, especially in a culture like ours where we are very time-oriented. But if you're going to place your hope in Him alone, as you ought, it will require waiting. Because God does things in His own time. And David shows us how to do this. Not only does he show us here, but his whole life, David modeled what it looks like to really wait on the Lord. Think about it. When Samuel told David that God had chosen him out of all of Israel to be the king, how long did David have to wait until he became king? Decades. So his whole life was literally about waiting on the Lord and His perfect timing. So David knew how to do this. Now now let's understand this much. To wait doesn't mean that you don't do anything. While David was waiting to receive the crown of Israel, did he just sit there and he's like, okay, one of these days, God's going to do something. One of these days, God's going to put me as the king. No, he continued doing things. David didn't spend his life doing nothing. And in this case, as he's waiting on the Lord, he's not doing nothing. What's he doing? He's praying. He's praying. Think about it. That's why we have this psalm. Because David wasn't doing nothing while he was waiting. And the fact that he was praying tells us that he was doing the best thing he could, that he was waiting on the Lord and drawing near to the Lord while he waited. And he was waiting on the Lord because his hope was entirely in the Lord. Friends, in every season of life, it is so important for us to remain mindful of the fact that the Lord is our only hope ultimately. Times of affliction and anguish will come and go, and they have a way of reminding us of how true that is. Of how true it is that God and God alone Is worthy of being our only hope David's third prayer here he's confident he's peaceful he's he's got a sense of assurance he's gained the proper perspective of things and it's restoring the peace of his mind he asks for nothing here you might see Instead, he only confidently states what he will do, knowing what God will do, having focused on who God is and what God can do. So why should David hope in God and God alone? Why should God even listen to David's prayer? David gives us a list of five brief reasons in the next section. Let's look at verses 16 to 20. He continues saying, "For I said, May they not rejoice over me, who, when my foot slips, would magnify themselves against me? For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I confess my iniquity; I am full of anxiety because of my sin. But my enemies are vigorous and strong, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. And they, and those who repay evil for good, they oppose me because I follow." What is good. What a blessing it is when we truly and fully come to terms with the fact that God is our only hope. That indeed Christ is our only hope. Just as David's hope was entirely in the Lord, friends, yours and mine also must be because there is ultimately no other hope. All other ground is sinking sand. There is nothing else worth clinging to, worth hoping in. We must have the Lord as our greatest hope, as our only real hope. David doesn't introduce anything new in this section. Instead, he summarizes as he humbly pleads with God, why god is his only hope and why god should listen to his prayer five quick reasons first uh, one in each uh, in each verse first verse 16 the first reason is because it wouldn't be right for his enemies to be glorified in his downfall god alone deserves the glory and david's desire is for god to be glorified in his life even in the midst of his suffering second verse 17 David has already slipped. That's that's what his own strength can do. It can cause him to slip. And he will do more than just slip. He will fall if God does not intervene. Third, verse 18, because his flesh is so weak. He's not in a position to overcome sin. All he can do at this point is confess it, turn from it, and hate it. And what a blessing, what, what a work of God it is in us when we do the same, when we see our sin for what it is, when we confess it. Remember the, the Greek word for confess that's found in First John is homologeo, which means same word, which means being in agreement with God. What God says is evil, we agree is evil. And when we do that, that's not our own doing, that's a work of God. That we would see our sin for what it is. That we would confess it and receive cleansing. That we would turn from it and that we would hate it. Fourth, verse 19. David is numbered, outnumbered by his enemies. However great his enemies may be, however, God is greater. It's better to have God on your side than to have all the armies of the world on your side. And so if God does not intervene, David knows he's done for. Because his Enemies vastly outnumber Him. Fifth and finally, verse 20, for the sake of justice, for the sake of righteousness. His enemies are wicked. They're evil men who are worthy of justice, who deserve justice, judgment. Does it seem strange, by the way, that David says, they oppose me because I follow what is good? This is a, a, a psalm where David's confessing his sin, where, where he's sick. He's got some kind of, of ailment because of his sin. And, and here he has the audacity to say, these people hate me because I follow what's good. It's not strange at all, actually. In fact, what David is saying is true. And all of God's people, all of us, can say the same thing. Because we all sin. Nevertheless, our lives should be characterized by obedience to the Lord, which means following His Word, which means following what is good. Even though we sin. Even though we can confess a million sins and still have a lengthy list to go. Nevertheless, there should be obedience in our lives we should be able to say i too follow what is good if you're obeying god's word it's true of you david's desire for the evil of these wicked men to be thwarted and indeed to be judged by god by the way is a good and just desire it's okay to pray for your enemies to be judged by god david closes the psalm with one final prayer He's found peace. He's found confidence. He's found a refuge from the wrath that his sin has earned him. He's found a hiding place. God is his hiding place. His place of refuge. God is his only hope. And he trusts in God. And so let's look at this final prayer that he offers unto God. Verses 21 and 22. He says, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. I want to remind you one more time of how short these prayers are. How short these petitions are. It doesn't need to be lengthy. It doesn't need to be complicated. It's okay for it to be simple and straight to the point. David's prayer is simply this. David's prayer is that God would neither leave him nor forsake him, but that he will be near David. That he will help David. Will God do that? Will God be with him? Or will God abandon him? God will not abandon him. God will absolutely not abandon his children. Instead, God will be his salvation. Salvation is found in nobody but him. And He will be yours as well if you will call on Him and trust in Him. The Scriptures teach us that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved and that there is salvation in no one else for there is no name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved other than Jesus. Other than Jesus. This salvation is graciously granted to all who, like David, confess their sins and hope in nobody but the lord and so friends in times of sickness in times of suffering in times of anguish and affliction our response must be to humble ourselves examine ourselves confess our sin and turn to the lord for mercy and grace it's found nowhere else and nobody loves to give mercy and grace like god does let's pray Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that mercy and grace are found in no one but You. And to that end, You sent Your only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to uphold the demands of Your law, to uphold them perfectly, to live a sinless life, and yet to die a sinner's death. We thank You that He died in our place and that in so doing, Our transgressions, our sins were transferred to him, and you clothed us in his perfect righteousness, that we may stand before you forgiven, redeemed as children of God. Thank you, O Lord, for your grace and for your mercy. We pray that you would teach us, O Lord, to have the right perspective of you, to have a high view of you, to to see you as your word describes you and to see ourselves as Your Word describes us. Teach us to be humble. Teach us to seek You. Use whatever means possible, Lord, whatever means necessary, to draw us to Yourself and to cause us to glorify You in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.